This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. We've got lots of uh, great things to talk about from uh, relationships and health. And right now I am on the line, I am joined by on the line is Dr. Justin Miller. He is a uh, psychologist and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want. He received his PhD in social psychology from Purdue University as a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, as I said, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. He's an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard University, where he taught for several years. He's a prolific researcher and scholar. He has published more than 40 pieces of academic writing to date. He knows his stuff. Good evening, Dr. Lay Miller. Good evening. Hi, Marie, and thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you so much for your awesome book. It was fantastic. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> thanks. Happy to hear it. Yeah, no, it was great. It was it was really great, and um, you know, it, it's so rich. Uh, there's so much to it. I'm going to have to have you back before I've even started <laughs> with you. Um, but I, I wanted to. I had a patient this week who told me that she had caught her husband um, viewing a, a friend of hers online on Facebook, and this made her extremely uncomfortable that he would be fantasizing about her friend potentially while he was being intimate with her. And this worried her tremendously, and in fact, she stopped being intimate with her husband. And so sexual fantasies, it's not something that we talk about too much and a sexual fantasy is any mental picture that comes to mind while when you're awake it's conscious that ultimately turns you on but you explain sexual fantasy in a very detailed and very appropriate way in your book mm-hmm. right so uh, a sexual fantasy is not necessarily a sexual desire right so you can fantasize about something the thought of it turns you on but it doesn't necessarily mean it's something you want to do if this is your biggest sexual fantasy of all time, odds are, you know, maybe it is something you want to make part of your sex life in the future. But if it's just a thought that pops in your head uh, every now and then, it's not necessarily a sign that you want to do it or that you're going to act on it. And when it comes to the scenario you're describing of uh, somebody fantasizing about their their partner's best friend, uh, I find that that's actually a very common sexual fantasy. And in fact, among men, uh, it is um, a majority of them reported having had that fantasy before. Again, though, it doesn't mean that they want to act on it. It really stems from the fact that we tend to be turned on by novelty and newness. And uh, so, so just thinking about something different might turn us on. And so does a spouse have to worry when they catch their partner, their husband potentially perhaps um, online, looking at their friends? I mean, it was a little close for comfort, and this was the issue <laughs> with the woman that the woman had. Um, and there may be some additional worries as well there. But, but is this something that we, we don't talk about our sexual fantasies, yet 97% of people have had sexual fantasies, but it's not commonplace chatter. 
Right. And, and most of us will fantasize about someone other than a romantic partner at one time or another. But that does not necessarily mean that you're going to act on that fantasy. It does not necessarily mean that there's a problem with you or with your relationship. It's just normal to be turned on and titillated by, by novelty. So I wouldn't look at that as, as a sign that there's a reason to be concerned in and of itself. If it was paired with a broader pattern of behavior suggesting uh, dishonesty or where a partner was hiding things and, and so forth, then there might be a little bit more reason for concern, right? So, so you would need to get into uh, things at a much deeper level there. And many people fantasize about their current partner, which I think would sure. come as a surprise to a lot of people. <laughs> Right. And it turns out that the one person who's most likely to appear in your sexual fantasies is actually your current romantic partner. It, it doesn't mean that, you, that most people are only ever fantasizing about their partners, just that the one person who's most likely to appear is your partner. And you say that it's nothing to worry about if you catch your spouse, um, you know, in the bathroom every morning on Facebook, looking at the same person. <laughs> Well, okay. If it's every morning with the same person, that that might be a different situation. Okay. (laughs) The alarm bells are starting to ring. Um, uh, According to your book, most people hope, and that's the operative word, hope to turn their sexual fantasies into realities in the future. They may not be able to, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but they hope. And, and they do hope to do that, at least for their biggest sexual fantasy of all time. So, so most people have a, a go-to fantasy, one that they think of more often than others. And by and large, that's a fantasy that people do want to make part of their sexual reality. However, there are usually dozens and in some cases hundreds, maybe even thousands of fantasies that an individual might have over the course of their life. It doesn't mean that they want to turn every single one of those into reality, but that favorite one, by and large, tends to be something that people do want to act on. So there is a go-to sexual fantasy. Okay, good to know. Now, we, we could not be living in a more sexualized world, yet sex is still taboo, which is why I recommend everybody read your book, honestly. Um, the more shame, embarrassment, and anxiety that people feel about their sexual desires, the more likely they are to avoid talking about sex. And I hear that a lot from my patients. And so this can also lead to performance anxiety, performance issues, difficulties with arousal, with erection, with ejaculation, with experiencing orgasm. And it can also impact their relationship. So why is it that we have such a hard time? Well, except for me and probably you. (laughs) Uh, why is it? I'm like shampoo, sex. What's the difference? Anyway, <laughs> they're all the same. Part of life, every day, activity of daily living. Um, but why is it that we find it so challenging to talk about sex? It, it stems from a lot of factors, and it can be different things for different people. So for some people, there might be a religious component to this, where they've been told that sex is a very narrowly defined activity. For example, that it should only be uh, vaginal intercourse within the context of a monogamous marriage and that any other form of sex is immoral or sinful. Uh, That might lead some people to feel like any other desire that they have is something that is a source of shame or embarrassment or, right. or anxiety. I, I have a question about that. I've had a number of men email me over the holidays um, about that very thing, that they were taught, um, they were raised Catholic or Southern Baptist or a Republican. <laughs> and um, they were taught that, you know, there was only one type of Uh, sex, and that was within a monogamous relationship, married, and um, they have difficulty um, 
going outside, you know, and, and their wives may be postmenopausal or have low sexual desire, and so they um, they feel shame, and they they some men have described a, a post-coital hangover of guilt and shame, and I'm feeling horrible about you know enjoying sex. How do you turn that around for somebody who was raised with that um, type of education? It's it's really tough because if someone has gone through this for for decades where they've been conditioned to feel so much shame and embarrassment and anxiety when it comes to sex, it's not a switch that you can just flip off. And and that's a case where it might be useful to seek some uh, professional help and counseling in terms of dealing with that and, and integrating your uh, spiritual or religious identity with your sexual desires and urges, right? This is a very complex thing. It's not something that we're taught about in sex education courses. And when you go through life thinking this for, for decades, it's really, really hard to, to, to kind of work through this on your own. And so that's a case where I would suggest uh, professional help or counseling. Absolutely. I wish we had more time, Dr. Miller. Where can people get your book? Uh, it's available through basically all major bookstores, Amazon, and so forth. And I also run a website, a blog called Sex and Psychology, where I write about the latest sex research uh, several times a week. Tell me what you want, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. We'll definitely have you back, Dr. Lay Miller. Thank you so much for being on the program. Hello, and welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It is estimated that about three and a half million Canadians are diabetics. This has a results in a huge cost to provincial governments and federal governments. Um, and But fortunately, in the studio, if you've gotten a little diabetes over the Christmas holidays like I did after eating all of those sweets and um, <laughs> chocolates, box upon box of Purdy's chocolates, look no more than this show. Ernest Kwansa is a lifestyle strategist and chef. He specializes in diabetes education and weight management. He is a highly sought-after internationally keynote speaker. He's author of Diabetics Journey, founder of Diabetics, founder of Just for Diabetics website, and he is also, as I mentioned, a trained chef. He managed to turn his own type 2 diabetes around. And that's nothing short of a Christmas miracle. Welcome to the studio, Ernest. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So tell me a little bit about yourself, first of all, with your, you had uh, a lot of weight on you. Uh, You had a stressful job as a chef, filling everybody's orders, uh, getting it right, uh, trying new recipes. I mean, I, I, I gather being a chef is a very stressful career. Yes, in this particular case, I was a chef in a, in a facility and as a director of food services, I found myself working long hours. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't make time to, to take care of myself properly. I stopped exercising and I started drinking soft drinks and having cookies for breakfast. Sounds and good to me. I will have it for lunch. Mm-hmm. I will have it for midnight snack. And believe it or not, sometimes I will take cookies home, wake up two in the morning and eat one. and say, well, okay, let me have a second one. Oh, mm-hmm. let me have a third one. The next thing I know, a dozen cookies are gone. Right. All of a sudden, one day, <clears throat> I found myself craving sugar. Mm-hmm. And I just indulged, indulged, particularly with sweet drinks. And my weight began to drop rapidly from, from 220 pounds to 170 pounds in six weeks. Is that right? And I was so happy. Wow, I'm losing weight. This is great. But then after a month, I noticed a, 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 a sticky substance on my tongue in the morning when I, I got up. And mm-hmm. someone was coming from the corner of my eyes, and I didn't know what it was. So I panicked, and I went to the doctor's office. 
And he taught, he asked me a few questions and said, Ernest, I suspect that you become diabetic and they authorize a test. Within two hours, the front office called me and said, Ernest, you need to get back in here right now. When I went, my doctor's face was red. He says, you are diabetic and you are just steps away from going into cardiac arrest. Do you know that sticky substance that you see on your tongue every morning and at the corner of your eyes? That is, you have so much sugar in your body that is beginning to exit instead of killing you. Wow. That's how we started. Now, how many, you know, I, I act like, um, like I've never gotten up at 2 a.m. and eaten a dozen cookies. Like, I'm so shocked that you did that. <laughs> but how long did it take you for you to uh, eat that way and live that chronic, stressful life before you were diagnosed? How many years? Well, it takes several years. For instance, uh, even when I was in my 30s, sometimes I have something called sugar water. I'll just put sugar in water until it's sweet. Oh, wow. And I'll drink that. Okay. So I've been sugar, you know, I've been loving, I, I love sweets. Right. And I was doing that for years. So eventually, once I, di- I was diagnosed, I realized that it's a buildup of sugar yes. that eventually leads to the type 2 diabetes. Okay, so it was several years. Yes. And so then what happened? What did you decide to do? What did your doctor say? And so he put me on, uh, on drugs to reduce the sugar in my body. And so what happened was uh, the dosage was so high that my eyes shut off within a week. So, so I went you, into a pan- you lost your vision? I lost my vision. I was panicking and I, I, I said to a friend, you know, can you please, you know, call my doctor's office? I need to talk to them. And then they got my doctor on the phone and he explained to me that because there was so much sugar in my body and that they have to take a drastic measure to bring that under control, my eyes shut down. That is normal. That is going to restore itself in four weeks. And that's what happened. When that happened, I went back to, the, to his office and I said to him, I asked him, so can type 2 diabetes be cured or am I going to die from this? He said, yes, it can be. And I said, but why didn't you tell me two years ago when he diagnosed me? He says, well, sometimes people don't want to listen. So I asked him, what should I do? And he told me, I left this office and I took on a, a, a role as a researcher. And after two weeks, all of a sudden, it just made sense. I came out with a simple formula, which is proper dieting, exercise and supplements. I tried it, refined it, and finally, all of a sudden, one day, I go to, to do my exercise, and I felt a surge of energy, and it just continued on. So I called the doctor's office, and I said, Dr. Robinson, I'm having all this energy. What is going on? He said, well, come back to the office. Let's do another test. They did it. I went back for the results, and he took my blood test uh, uh, results. I said, look at this. You've cured yourself of type 2 diabetes. And I said, What? And he was so excited. He says, you are so unique. You are the second person I've seen, a patient who have done this in 40 years. I'm so proud of you. If you like, I can even give you a hug. Wow. And he started telling the other doctors and the nurses that, look at this man. You know, he killed himself with diabetes. That's amazing. Now we're talking type 2 diabetes. Exactly. So for the listeners, could you explain what type 2 diabetes is? So type 2 diabetes. So there's two types of diabetes. There's the 1 and the 2. Only 10% of diabetics are the type 1. Type two, and so the type 1 means that your pancreas is dead. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. No, nothing can be done for you. Type 2, on the other hand... Well, no, you can take insulin. You, it, yes, yes, insulin, yeah. Yes. But in so terms of reversing... We just want to give yes. the appropriate information. Yes. yes that you can... It, it requires um, insulin. insulin. Yes. Yes. yes, okay. The type 2, your pancreas still works, okay? But what happened over the years is because the person has consumed so much sugar, there is a buildup of sugar inside the person's body. Mm-hmm. That sugar finds its way into the bloodstream where some of them... Uh, some of the sugar uh, converts into fat. The fat would then coat the red blood cells. We know that the red blood cell is responsible for absorbing sugar and transporting it into the muscles to be used as energy. So once these bl- red blood cells are coated with, sh- with fat, they are no longer able to absorb the sugar. 
Right. This is how type 2 diabetes uh, 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 happens. So at that point, the medical term that is uses, it uses, the person is not insulin resistant. Okay. And so what, um, did your doctor, did your doctor advise for you to eat a particular diet? Well, when I went to see him, I was already a chef. So he knew that, you know, he just says, well, you have to exercise like crazy. That, that was his first word. Wow. But he didn't tell me the specific exercise. Right. You the, exercise twice a day now, don't you? Right now, I'm diabetes, I've been diabetes-free for, for many, since 2012. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing four, four times a week. You exercise four times four a week? Four times a week. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought I saw read on WebMD that you were exercising in the morning and at night. Were you so doing that earlier? When I, yeah, when I was actually diagnosed, I see. there was so much sugar in my body that I had to find a way to burn it off. Mm-hmm. So I was exercising twice a week. So for instance, I'll go to the gym and work with weights yeah. and do cardio for 10 minutes, 10 or 15. In the evening... I would just do a cardio for 45 minutes. I see. But the key thing is that when I started, I could not even do five minutes of cardio. I had to work my way up. Within 20 days, I was able to stay on the treadmill or the elliptical machine for up to 45 minutes. Wow. That's fantastic. And you've written a great book here called Diabetics Journey, How Type 2 Diabetes Can Be Reversed and Cured. Yes. So what would you recommend to somebody who's on their way to type 2 diabetes? Maybe they're overweight, maybe they're sedentary, they've made all these New Year's resolutions which don't work because your present day brain and your future day brain are always in conflict, so that's why the resolutions fail. Um, But what would you suggest to somebody uh, that is facing that their doctor has said, you've got to lose weight, your blood pressure's up, your cholesterol's up, your sugar is rising, uh, what would you say? My advice to the pe- people is, one, you must take sugar out of, your, out of your diet. That's number one. Because it's a sugar buildup that causes the type 2 diabetes. Also, research showed that sugar also help, helps you, it makes you gain weight. Mm-hmm. So that has to come out. Then eat healthy, and exercise. Eating rice or pasta doesn't cause diabetes. According to Dr. Sanjay Basu of uh, Stanford University, who's a PhD and epidemiologist, he and a team of researchers actually traveled to research to track the causes of diabetes, type 2. And it was tracked directly to what I found in my own research back in 2012, Mm -hmm. refined sugar. It is in too many foods. Right. I say to my patients, um, you know, I make that recommendation as well. And they'll say, oh, I don't eat any sugar. And I'll say, well, what would you have for breakfast? And they'll say a muffin. I'll be like, it's loaded with sugar. It is. <laughs> yeah. So the sugar's in everything. And especially, uh, I've worked as a pastry chef as well. And once I started doing pastry, that's, that really opened my eyes to how much sugar we are eating. For instance, let me give you an example. If you're making brownies, chocolate is bitter. Okay. So you have to put enough sugar in the recipe to balance out the bitterness, then you have to add more to sweeten it. So now you have twice the amount of sugar. Right. That's my favorite food is brownies. Brownies and anything made <laughs> with chocolate, away. people love it. But the thing is, having a, a white chocolate cake is probably less dangerous than brownies because you don't have to sweeten the, the flour. Good to know. Who knew that at 2 a.m.? I'll remember that. <laughs> uh, so you are a lifestyle strategist and you specialize in this. And so you educate people. Do you have clients and how can they get a hold of you? How can they get your book? Well, my book, they can find my books and my, my uh, program on my website, justfordiabetes.com. And we have a book to give away. So if yes, you want to give us a call, one 877 399 We'll give you uh, Ernest's book, Diabetics Journey. It's a fabulous read. Um, yeah, so you, you, how can they get in touch with you? They can just go to my website if anybody have a question. 
diabetes um, journey, uh, just for diabetes.com. They can send me an email through there. If they're looking for my book, they can find information on the website. And I also offer some free freebies, but the meat and potato is actually in the actual full program. And the program is laid out the way I did it. And it's been featured on WebMD, like you mentioned. So first month, the sort of foods that people should be eating, exercise, and supplement that they need to take. Then it goes all the way to the end of the month, and then it goes from month number two and explains what they need to do. So quite often, diabetes, uh, diabetes recipes are usually recipe books. So as I share, what I have for people is a menu cycle that they can actually follow. The nice. se- so the secret is that it's almost like obesity. When you tell people, well, you have to do this and this and this to lose weight, quite often people don't find it very successful. But what I've actually tested is that making a meal for the client and say, eat this for breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. They tried it and it works. Exactly. I always said that, you know, if I were Oprah, (laughs) it would be so easy for me (laughs) because I would just have somebody making my meals and cleaning everything and washing the car mats and the dog and, you know, (laughs) doing everything. So your meals would be served to you and you would have all the time in the world to exercise. Then you just go on the air every now and again and talk. Well, Ernest, you're a delight. Thank you so much. It's great information. Really appreciate it. I think it's integral to this time of year, especially a lot of people start new things. The best time to start something is 20 years ago, but the second best time is now. So get on your journey with Ernest and go to, uh, your website is? Justfordiabetics.com. Justfordiabetics.com. Ernest, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Great information. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. And I'll be off those brownies and on to your website very soon. Thank you. And uh, Ernest Kwansa is in the studio, and uh, I did say goodbye to him and thank him for his contribution to the program, but we've had a few callers. So uh, if you want to call, the number to call is one 399 as Ernest is still in the studio, and he's going to take Yvette's call from Nanaimo, British Columbia. Hello, Yvette. Hi there. I hope you can hear me. I can. Um, my question is, sure, take out sugar out of your uh, diet, but how about carbohydrates? Isn't that a form of sugar? Ernest? That's a good question. Carbohydrate actually will convert into sugar after it's consumed. Refined sugar, on the other hand, is already processed sugar, so it goes straight into, into your body. Now, to take sugar out of your diet means to take refined sugar out of, your, out of your diet completely, including any foods made with refined sugar. If you have type 2 diabetes and you're trying to reverse it, I advise that you stop eating rice, white bread, pastas, and stuff like that, just to facilitate the reversal process. But eating those foods in a small amount is fine. After you have reversed it. So initially, you should... You should avoid it while you're in a process of trying to reverse it. Okay. And actually, what I have is that I have a complete uh, literature on that. So when people uh, go to my website and get the program, it will explain things to them why they shouldn't do this and why they should be doing this. And it makes sense more that way. Okay. So, but she's correct. The carbohydrates are sugar too. They, they convert into sugar. So if you reverse into type 2 diabetes, take that out and replace it with uh, brown pasta. For instance, I use a, a, pasta, a pasta made out of a product called Kamut. So Kamut is like, uh, it's flakes. And pound for pound, it has more protein than red meat. Okay. So those kinds of things. And you can also eat brown rice. Right. Okay. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't process into uh, carbohydrate as quickly as white rice. Okay, is that helpful, Yvette? Yes, it is. Does that answer your question? 
Okay. There's a book called The Skinny Diet, and the lady was saying the hidden sugars. You take Kybar uh, on your product, whatever, how much you have in carbohydrates. I never pronounced that right. Minus the fiber and whatever answer you have, divided by five, it tells you how much of the sugar, uh, hidden sugars you have. Are you familiar with that formula, Ernest? I'm not familiar with that formula. Um, but, you know, refined sugar is refined sugar. Right. And, but I do think fiber is good for... If you're diabetic, fiber is good. Yes. There's actually a book written by a researcher, and it's called The China... I've forgotten the name of it. But in it's not that, a skinny diet. No, it's not a skinny diet. Okay. In that book, he explains that if you're diabetic, you need to consume more fiber. More fiber. So my typical diet would be, let's say, sauté salmon with vegetables. Mm-hmm. And the thing people have to remember is that vegetables, such as, you know, cabbage and uh, cauliflower and all those, they have carbohydrate as well. So when you eat vegetables, you get your carbohydrate from it. If you add, let's say, pasta or white rice, you are simply adding more carbohydrate, right. which doesn't make sense. So when I eat, I take out all the other carbohydrate and get it from vegetables. Right. But, but the, the most important thing I want people to know is that once the diabetes is reversed and gone, people can reintroduce their favorite meals. But don't eat it in excess like I did. I see. Don't be drinking sugar and juices on empty stomach. Uh, some people preach that, but it's highly dangerous because the body just absorbs it and that's it. Then you're stuck with it. Absolutely. And it contributes to inflammatory disorders. Exactly. And exactly. Yes. Yes. All sorts of medical conditions. Well, thank you, Yvette, for uh, your question and for listening to the program. That's great. And Ernest, thank you for staying behind and answering thank you. some of these questions. It's really important information. It's, it's critical, in fact. Um, that for because of the way we eat today, we eat so many processed foods today, and there's you know, and we're on the run, we're busy. You know, you weren't the only stressed person out there. No, <laughs> that was you know, that's grabbing something quick just to fill them up, right? Fill them up, and we, research show that people usually will eat unhealthily if uh, they are in a rush. You're exactly correct. Well, thank you so much, Ernest Kwanza, Diabetics Journey. We're going to try to say goodbye to you again. <laughs> <laughs> And his website is justfordiabetics.com. Thank you so much. I think you'll have a few people visiting that website tonight. So I really appreciate that. And um, we're also going to bring on, I'm going to chat right now to, uh, I don't know if you know this, if you can think back to 2013, there was a contest out there in British Columbia in January of 2013. 60 countries participated and 22 winners would win a trip into outer space. The contest was made up of two rounds, and I met Herbert Bosarts, who was Vancouver's astronaut, uh, recently. (laughs) And so he told me about his experience. And, you know, a lot of people have a resolution to meet somebody new, and especially this time of year. They're going to couple up. And Herbert learned quite a bit walking around his fine city in an astronaut suit. Welcome to the program, Herbert. We only have about a minute. Um, We're just going to introduce you here and just tell me a little bit, a little background on this, why you decided to join this little program, the space program, (laughs) which you didn't actually get get to go into space. But anyway. Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, Late 2012, I wrote down this dream that I really wanted to go into space. Didn't know how it's going to happen. Didn't know how or cost. I didn't care. I just going to write it down. And uh, then early 2013, I saw this uh, 
this contest on Facebook that said we're going to send 22 people into space, 60 countries participated, and round one was just get as popular as you could be. So I thought I'd come up with this uh, personality, Herbert the Astronaut. Nobody's going to vote for Herbert, but people are going to vote for Herbert the Astronaut. So that's kind of how that started. Excellent. And vote they did. And I'm going to ask you to stay here with me in the studio because we unfortunately have to go to break. <laughs> um, and uh, you're going to come back uh, at 9 o'clock and we're going to talk about what you learned uh, how that impacted how you met people, how, what it was like, how you became more comfortable or less comfortable, and and the results of walking around as somebody else. I have Herbert the astronaut, the former astronaut, sort of astronaut, not really, changed his persona to be that, in the studio with me. Right at this time of year, everyone says... Quite often, I want to meet somebody. I want to meet somebody new. But how do you do that? You can be shy. You, you're afraid they're not going to like you. What are they going to think of your appearance initially? We all have insecurities. And Herbert learned a lot from entering a contest after he wrote down on his vision board that he wanted to go into space. He saw a contest put on by the Axe Company. Um, you know, that spray that a lot of people turned a lot, a lot of guys turned a lot of women off by using way too much. Um, there were 120 participants who fought for 22 space travel spots way back in 2013. But Herbert learned a lot about it, especially about meeting people and becoming a different person and having people let their guard down. So thanks so much for staying in the studio with me, Herbert. I thought this was a fascinating story, especially since, you know, I often say that only the truth is interesting and, you know, put your best self forward, but people have insecurities. And so they go out there and they're afraid to meet people. They're afraid to go up to somebody. They're afraid somebody's not going to like them, or you're not going to look like your picture on the online dating thing, which most people don't. <laughs> but what was it like walking around your fine city of Vancouver, British Columbia, as an astronaut? Well, uh, the first time I wore it was mid-February. It was really cold. My visor, I was wearing a helmet with a visor. It fogged up. It was just not working right away. Um, also, nobody knew who I was. I was just some guy walking around in a spacesuit in Vancouver downtown. Right. Um, I learned quickly that people had questions, but they didn't really ask me the questions until I would reach out or they see I wasn't just a weirdo with a spacesuit in Vancouver. Did you feel easier reaching out to people than you would, say, if you were in a bar? It, it was, yes. So there was a difference between daytime and nighttime. It was actually a big difference. Oh, what was going the difference? To, going to a bar in a spacesuit, everybody's your friend. There is no... Everybody's your friend. Like everybody Free beers wants pictures. for the astronaut. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> right. Everybody's your friend. In daytime, if they don't know what you're doing, they kind of just look at you and ignore you. So I learned quite quickly that I needed a sign that actually said in maybe two lines, five words on each line, what I was doing, what I wanted from, from the suit and, and being this Herbert, the astronaut person. Right. And so I just started wearing this big sign that said, vote for Herbert. It was my website where the voting link was. Um, it said, I want to win this uh, trip into space and I'm in a contest. And so people that walked towards me kind of could make up their mind. Like I really learned that people need some time to process things. And once they understand something, they're actually open to it. And they really, they really, they really want to know more if they're interested, obviously. 
Right. And would you say you were less shy walking around in your, because you were hidden a little bit. And, and I was, yes. Yeah. I was actually, and, and still am, but I was actually very introvert. Um, I didn't feel the need to be a public figure of any kind. Right. With the suit, it kind of opened up my life and my world to a different way of being. And I could allow myself to be a different way as well. Now, I don't know you too well, but <laughs> uh, we've done some work together. And, but that's how I would have uh, assessed you as a, as, a shy, as a shy person, just the same as you probably thought I'm a shy person as well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and an introvert. Uh, no, uh, but that's probably what I would have uh, surmised about you is that you're shy and more on the introvert side. But mm. did, so that's probably your nature. Did this change you? Did you, after walking around in an astronaut suit and talking to so many people, because you actually got right close up to the top spot there, you were number nine out of how many? I don't know how many, but at least 6,000 plus. Could be 10,000, could be 15,000. Right. I don't know. There was no final So you're right ranking. up there. You got a lot of votes. Yeah. You talked to a lot of people. How did that change you? Um, yeah, I went on CTV, on Shaw TV here, lots of radio stations here and in Europe and, and, and some in, in United States as well. And the only one that matters is the Chorus Radio Network, as you know, That's the one right. you're on right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it allowed you to be... Uh, a new persona, to take on a new persona. Yeah. Uh, was it easier to meet women as an astronaut? Um, we were talking about fantasies yes, earlier yes in the program. No. <laughs> I actually mentioned that on a dating site, and you could see it, 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 it attracted some curiosity, but it also, some, some women found out maybe after step one, and they actually didn't want that. Oh, I see. Did they think you were a bit of a weirdo, maybe? I mean, you yeah, know. they didn't understand. They didn't maybe, understand right? it, yeah. that you were, that, that your intention was. And, and I know you wanted to go into space, but um, what, you must have had some subliminal desire to meet and be able to talk to and just be more comfortable uh, having a conversation with a lot of people. And, and do you think that's a, a better way to be, like bringing your guard down and being easier to talk to people? I mean, certainly you must have made so many people happy. I think so, yeah. Everybody wanted their picture, obviously. And uh, um, it was, like, what I learned was it's not about being introvert or extrovert. It's really about being yourself. And, right. and, and I wasn't 100% myself, but I could allow myself to be more open and not close. Being close doesn't help anyone. Right, and so you're so, more comfortable in your own skin, if you will. Yep, yeah, that's right. And we should all put on an astronaut suit maybe every now and again. <laughs> Um, but there's some other work that you do that I thought was extremely interesting and um, wonderful, actually. So tell me about the charity work that you do. Yeah, so about a year ago, I met this this, uh, this really great guy from really good friends now. His name is Jonavo. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, we met a year ago and we really hit it off. And, and he started telling me about his passion about being a soccer player, professional soccer player. He's 23 now and he said, you know what? I might not become that person. Uh, but so he's, what he's doing now is that he wanted to translate that passion into helping youth in his community and his country to, uh, to play soccer, but not just barefoot soccer. He wanted to give the, the kids around him the feeling of how it feels like to be a professional football player and to, to become ambitious and become leaders and, and, and just grow the, well, the life, their own life. And so uh, we came up with this, this charity where we, where we get a whole bunch of soccer shoes together. Either we, we collect, we raise money or we get them donated to us. And then he goes into community and he organizes a tournament. 
And that's how. And where's his community? Uh, Uganda. In Uganda. Yeah, Uganda. And so you send the soccer shoes from Canada down to Uganda. Yeah, it's it's cheaper to get the money there, and then he can buy it locally. That's of actually at this moment cheaper still. Right, and that can inspire a child to um, pursue their dreams. Absolutely, yes. Because once they're playing, you know, you're playing soccer in bare feet. That's a whole lot different than playing soccer with um, a soccer cleat on or soccer boot on. And so that's a tremendous gift that you're uh, giving to to children around the world that otherwise would not have that benefit, especially at this time of year. So this is a good New Year's resolution. And so what's your charity called? Um, we don't have a name yet. Like we, we have a cause. Uh-huh. We're, we're figuring out a name. What's, what's the right name? Right. Um, we're still figuring it out. Okay. So your cause is you want to inspire other people. Uh, so you've connected with people in your city and you've connected with children around the world and you're inspiring people all over. So Yeah. And, and our goal is in Q1 of this year to have uh, a web page, a Facebook page to get some pictures out there. We have a whole bunch. Now That's of, great. Of and I won't say anything, but I know you're talking to some big wigs out there who are, um, you know, in the, in the know <laughs> yeah. who might be able to advance your uh, cause uh, quite nicely. So thanks for that great work, Herbert and Herbert the astronaut. And uh, so if you ever had a dream about dating an astronaut, I think you're single. I don't know. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I don't know him that well. I just, <laughs> as I said, we've just worked a little bit together. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, there could be somebody out there that has the fantasy of always wanting an astronaut. I did ask uh, uh, Herbert to bring the astronaut suit into the studio tonight, but he doesn't have it anymore. But that's okay. You've assured me you can pick up a new one. Anyway, that's right. Well, thank you so much, Herbert, for sharing your story. Pleasure being here. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you on this uh, first show of 2019. Joining me in the studio is Erica. She is a former married business owner, mom of two beautiful boys, who is now a single unemployed mom of two beautiful boys joining me to talk about optimism in the face of a terminal cancer diagnosis, bone marrow transplant, and double lung transplant. She is a world-class speaker and quite frankly, the brightest star in the darkest sky. I want to say that her terminal cancer diagnosis came several years ago. She was told she was only going to live for two months and she is here today in the studio and I am so glad she is Thank you so much for joining me in the studio, Erica. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, a lot of people complain. They have pity parties. Uh, pity, self-pity is a powerful thing. They can feel badly if, uh, you know, their bank account is low or, you know, the check is late or if they trip on something or nothing ever goes their way and all of these nebulous complaints you had something to complain about. You had something to cry about big time. Tell me about that as a mom of two baby boys, basically. The word cancer inherently denotes one dark cloud overhead for anyone who's being diagnosed. One full of worry, hurt, heart, loss, hardship. Um, I was very fortunate. And to come to the other side of cancer, I feel very blessed to have hurtled through the journey that I did. Um, I have come to stand now as the survivor of a terminal diagnosis, as a humbled and honored recipient of both 
a bone marrow transplant and a double lung transplant, and it has pivotally changed my life for the better. I'm a different person inside my heart. I carry such blessings that I never otherwise had, and I feel so blessed for having experienced this path of cancer. So many people go to worst case scenario and you were given the worst case scenario. You Mm -hmm. were told as a mom of two beautiful baby boys that you had two months to live. What, what, what is that like? What is the Mm -hmm. gravity of that? Words came out of me that I didn't know existed, to be honest, and, um, or sounds came out of me that I didn't know existed. And instantly what went through my mind was, um, how are my babies ever going to know how much I truly and utterly adored every little tiny thing about them? They were just five and barely two at the time. I'd still been nursing my youngest when I was diagnosed. It was gut-wrenching to think on July 31st, 2012, that I wouldn't even survive until Christmas, um, let alone their next birthdays or anything beyond. It was gut-wrenching. And here you are. And here I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. Six and a half <laughs> years later, uh-huh. looking gorgeous. Thank you. Healthy. You've got a few leftover <laughs> medical issues. A few. Uh, the uh-huh. marriage didn't survive. Correct. It was it was a tumultuous path. I'm not going to deny. We were hit hurdle after hurdle after hurdle, and we just found that we just navigated this path differently. I am only here. Um, because my husband who stood by my side for so long had saved nine of my lives, but it did. It took its toll on our path. That's for sure. And so it's a, you're on the other side now, but I, I know you and you appreciate every moment of every day. Hands down. Yeah. And what, what helps you get through? I mean, there are a lot of people out there, they're facing a breakup, perhaps, they're facing a medical condition, they're, they're living with chronic pain, they, are, they maybe have suffered a loss over the holidays. What gets you through every single day? Because certainly you've had worries, you've had rehospitalizations, you've had times where your blood counts were low, you had leukemia was the diagnosis, and, and so there are times that you've needed further medical care. How do you keep going? I, having heard the words, you have two months to live, I wake up every day and I get to be here, Maureen. It's the word get. Everything is an opportunity for me. Even if I'm stuck in traffic, I I just, I feel like I get to go to where I'm going. And it's just such an opportunity. My big boy will often forget his water bottle on the soccer field, but I'm strong enough to run and back and get to go get that water bottle. It's just an honor to get to be here. So gratitude is a big gratitude, part of it. Gratitude, hands down, yes. And a lot of people forget that gratitude. They, you know, we very, you know, we all have an invitation to the pity party, whether we accept it or not, um, is something else. Uh, but we can automatically go there. People go to worst case scenario in their heads quite often, or they feel like it's, you know, this always happens to me. It's kind of this always or never if things don't work out in their favor. But people don't realize that life is a gift. Every single day is a gift. Waking up, breathing is a gift. And, you know, there's no other choice than to appreciate it. And and I see that's how you live. Having had to purge almost every single part of what I recognized as myself along the way, I've come now to sit on the other side being grateful 
for the smallest of little things. Um, nature, I just became so connected with. I'm always taking photos. People are always chuckling with me because I always have my camera out, taking photos of the sunset, of leaves, of flowers, of my children all the time, and family members. Just the moments that just mean so much. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the biggest gift that you got you know, dare I say that you have two months to live. A lot of people, maybe if they had that gift, you have two months to live, maybe they would turn it around. Maybe they would start treating their the people in their lives a little bit better. I'm not sure I would have ever seen these blessings without having to be faced with those four white walls of VGH, of my hospital room at VGH, staring back at me for so long. It grounded me. It made me, it, it forced me to sit on my own and really reflect on those important moments. I'm sure it did. And, you know, it's just, I mean, I've been in the healthcare field and I've seen a lot of things. And, and I know when I've had troubles in my life, people are like, oh, you know, how come you're not more upset about this? And I think because I don't have a child that has a spinal tumor, you mm-hmm. know, like because I'm not, you know, dealing with chemotherapy or, you know, all of those issues because your health is your wealth. So, Erica, thank you so mm-hmm. much for joining me in the studio. What would you say to people out there to embrace the new year? Live, laugh and love every moment. Every single moment that is outstanding advice. It's Mm. such an honor to know you and uh, that I can call you my friend because, you know, you're, you're always somebody who's going to be up no matter what you're going through. And that's what I've really appreciated about you um, and having you in my life. So it's great. And I wanted to share your light because Ah. as I say, you are the brightest light in the darkest sky. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.